We, uh, we are blessed to, um, every other month we try to have a, a guest speaker who is not either me or Pastor Ben. And today, uh, I'm very glad he's been here before. If you've missed him before, I recommend you go and check out our, our podcast and listen to the previous sermons. Um, but this is uh, Dr. Fred Johnson, who just happens to be my father-in-law. Um, which is an absolute joy for me. I wanted to, to he, he told me I didn't need to introduce him, but I'm going to. Um, Fred has been preaching, I found this out today, I didn't know this, for about 34 years uh, and teaching at Bible college for about 32, which is just amazing to me. I've always been astounded by just the, the accumulation of wisdom, uh, the gentleness of spirit, that Fred has and the way he just in so many ways looks and acts like Jesus. Um, and so I'm just very glad he's here to speak to us again this morning and I'd just like to welcome him to come up and speak. Thanks. I like my son-in-law now. <laughs> no. Good morning, Calvary. Uh, thank, thank you, Clayton, very much. Um, uh, stay in that upper room, that imaginative prayer time we just had. Stay there. Uh, one Sunday morning, when I was eight or nine years old, I was sitting by an elderly lady at church. When we greeted that day, just like we did earlier today, I noticed that her hands were like leather, no doubt from years of some kind of hard labor. She was having trouble turning the pages in the hymn book, so I reached over and turned the pages for her. And I did that with the rest of the hymns that we sang that day. Uh, after the service was over, she reached into her purse and she extended her hand to me. I extended mine out and she dropped in my hand a nickel. It was my first paid ministry. <laughs> and I confess I didn't claim that on my income tax. I, I just didn't do that. It was such a simple act of service, wasn't it? Turning a few pages in a hymn book. But deep down... It made me feel good. And I haven't forgotten. God was just beginning to teach a little kid the transformative power of acts of service. Now let me ask Calvary a question. Has God been teaching that to you too? Erwin McManus writes in his book, Unstoppable Force. There's something mystical about servanthood because God is a servant. When we serve others, we more fully reflect the image of God, and here's the neat part. And our hearts begin to resonate with the heart of God. Loved ones, we may never be in a greater position to receive the transformational work of God than when we're serving others in the name of Jesus. We often discover, like I did turning a hymn book page, we often discover in the acts of service that we're actually recipients of something far greater than we have done, we had, that we have done. We become sort of like a beautiful butterfly emerging from a cocoon. And so today, it's a, it's a pleasure, it's an honor to be here and continue the series of Eating with Jesus by visiting the Upper Room, the Passover meal. 
Oh, my friends, it is a transformational meal. And our text this morning comes from John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. John's gospel, the first 12 chapters of John's gospel, Jesus is out there in the world. It's a public ministry. Chapters 13 through 17, it gets very private. Five chapters of Jesus in, in, in uh, close proximity to the ones who were following him. Now, let me ask you, you read the text. What does a dying parent say to their kids when death is imminent? What will the dying Lord say and do? I think we're on holy ground. Stay in this room. Although Jesus knows that this is his last Passover and he'll be arrested that evening, Although he knows it's time to leave this world, but first must experience the cross. Although he knows he could have turned his thoughts on himself and what loomed in the next uh, 24 hours. Like a mother lost and consumed for her children's care. Jesus loved them. Verse 2. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and He was returning to God. So why in the world does John report this about Judas? Why does Judas show up at the beginning of the story and the middle of the story and the end of the narrative? Clearly, I think, some kind of contrast is intended. Judas was determined to betray for profit. Jesus determined to bow to wash feet. Judas included, indeed, someone was loved to the very end. Hell itself can't obstruct that. The contrast is intensified. You know the narrative surrounding. Judas holds 30 silver coins in his hand. Judas, we read it in verse 1, then Jesus fully conscious of the power of the world in his hands, holds a towel. Verse 4, so he got up from the meal, took off the outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into the basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, the verbs in the text adds vividness. The action is detailed. He got up during the meal, not the customary time to wash feet. Uh, in my imagination that Clayton uh, uh, wanted me to think about, I picture Peter or John just finishing placing the food on the table and eating commenced when Jesus got up. The text says he took off his clothes. I think you ought to mark the plural seriously. His clothes, Jesus strips to the loincloth of a slave. Mark and Luke in their gospel, they tell us that Jesus had put Peter and John in charge of the preparations of the feast. I want you to notice something. The bowl, the water, the towel, all in the room, untouched. So Jesus picks up a long towel, and he wraps it around his waist two or three times. He ties it with cords, leaving uh, the, the, the other half there uh, to be used to dry, and he begins to wash their feet. Now, I guess I have to ask you something kind of personal here. 
again, using your imagination in the upper room, would he have jumped up to take his place? I do wonder if Peter was first in line. Probably not. I picture Peter being in the middle of the pack, becoming more and more uncomfortable the closer Jesus got. Verse 6, drama heightens. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing right now, but later you're going to understand. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. You see, Peter thinks he knows enough to question and then issue a command. The thought of Jesus bowing to wash feet is a bit too much for this guy. Peter will not accept the self-humiliation of Jesus. I can't help but think this. If, Jesus is, if, if uh, Peter's having trouble with the foot washing, he's really going to have trouble understanding the cross. But neither the kind reply of Jesus nor the promise of understanding suffices, Peter. I want you to hear this. Jesus, Peter, now commands, you will never wash my feet. And, and literally, the Greek text says, unto the ages. Let, let me paraphrase. You're not going to wash my feet forever. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you've got no part with me. Now, loved ones, there's a big difference between if I do not wash you and if you will not let me wash you. Big difference. Peter responded with a vigorous disobedience, and persistent disobedience cuts everyone off from intimate blessing of walking with Jesus. The one who refuses Jesus forever has no part. In John 4, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, I've got some special water, some unique water I want you to drink. In John chapter 6, it's bread. I've got some unique bread I want you to eat. Water and bread are symbols. Now, now Jesus must, I want you to get washed. Another symbol that we'll look at in just a minute. I, I've got to wash you here. So frightened at that thought, then Peter says, hmm, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body's clean. You're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. Let's see, Jesus corrects Peter. He points to Judas once again. And the drama in the upper room heightens. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on their clothes and he returned to his place. And then as a prof you got to love this. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. I kind of think you could have heard a pin drop in the room right about now. Do you understand? I, I push students sometimes. I remain mute till they talk. A little uncomfortable sometimes. Hmm. Hey, Jesus is not asking a rhetorical question to attract attention to something the folk in the upper room know that others don't. So what is it? What is it that we're to understand? It's well known for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example, that earlier to this story, there had been an argument about who's the greatest. So did Jesus decide to shame them by washing their feet? Maybe. 
See, the towel's a weapon now against contentious pride. Is the act symbolic? Well, it's also well known that John, our account, never mentions the Lord's Supper in the upper room. We don't see it there, so I ask you, why? Well, are we to see the foot-washing account as an interpretation, better a commentary on the body and the blood of Jesus? Jesus laying aside his garments, then representing laying aside his glory, of which Paul speaks in Philippians 2. Maybe. Is the symbolism to be found in the act of washing? That is, cleansing dirty feet is symbolic of a greater spiritual blessing of the soul by Jesus. Maybe. Is is water a symbol of the Holy Spirit who refreshes and sanctifies? Maybe. Uh, Does the water refer to baptism? Maybe. Or is it simply an example of living a life of lowly service? There, you got your options. (laughs) Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set for you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I'm a simple-minded man. Verse 15 absolutely renders the act plain to me. Jesus made himself their slaves. Now let that soak your soul a little bit. I think Jesus means what he says. You're to make yourself a servant for someone else. You're to prepare yourself to perform the lowliest acts of service to anyone, everyone, whenever, wherever. See, it's not just a lesson on humility because Jesus commands an uninterrupted duplication. Verse 16, I I tell you the truth. No servant's greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. So let me paraphrase. You're never too high to stoop, for you will never be superior to Jesus. Now let's move on, verse 17. Now that you know these things, see you got the understanding? Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. If... (laughs) You do them. Doesn't Jesus hint at the scarcity and difficulty of of participating in this kind of lowly service? You know, turning into pages in the hymn book, that's pretty easy, and I got paid. But who dreams of washing feet? Who preaches that such a life is easy? Any of you in the room? Stooping to do the unthinkable is absolutely alien to the spirit of our age, which indeed talks about the American dream, upward mobility. And as for the sincere believer here this morning who engages in servant leadership, you'll confess the bitter fact of how conduct lacked behind knowledge. So many stories inspire our imagination. They inspire our, 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 our imitation of the greatest servant leader, Jesus. Lost sheep, prodigal. Good Samaritan. And we long to embrace, but the greatest among you is the one who serves, or you must become like a child. But when you close your Bibles and you open the door to the rude and cruel world, that's like a fall from Eden into a state of sin and misery. And what a descent it is. And we battle. We battle against getting too mixed up in the world lest we degenerate in our thinking and tempted to adopt a less stringent life that Jesus calls us to. And the fear mounts that we might become a bit more of a sentimental hypocrite who, like Judas, kissed Jesus at the very moment of betraying him. And yet Jesus insists. 
No wiggle room. Lowly service. Downward mobility. Doing something unthinkable for the unloved and the loved. Is that in your contract at work? The DNA of your home? Is it the pulse of Calvary? All right. Imagine a rainbow. Ready for a rainbow? Jesus does not drive the teaching with more commands. He drives it home with a beatitude. It's a promise. Isn't that neat? You see, some feel only disgrace in doing a menial task for someone beneath them. The disciples of Jesus look at it as a great opportunity for a blessing. Now, I get it. I bet you've heard dozens, if not more, sermons on what you give someone else when you render a towel for someone. And rightly so. All kinds of sermons about that. But doesn't Jesus say in the text, you will receive a what? If you do these things, you'll receive a what? You can tell me. You'll receive a blessing. This is a transformational meal with Jesus. This word blessed, it really is the one that marks the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart and the poor in spirit and they that mourn. Let me define it. Blessedness, that denotes a joy. It denotes a satisfaction arising from possessing and experiencing God's favor in one or more manifestations, and he's good at it. He loves to do this. So then I have to ask, Jesus, you said, we'll be blessed rendering a towel. So what are you promising to us? How does this thing work? When we wash the feet of the world, what kind of divine favor will we experience? And here's number one. I think we will indeed experience the blessing of an enriched love. Let me illustrate. Gary Burge shares the story of Dr. Robert McQuilkin, who for many years was president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in South Carolina. Dr. McQuilkin began to see the signs of memory loss in his wife Muriel, and for the next decade he watched as his wife's career of conference speaking and radio shows and TV appearances began to erode and eventually disappeared. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and her deterioration continued in advance very rapidly. And so this situation posed a crisis for Dr. McQuilkin. As the president of a college and a seminary, how could he meet the needs of his wife? Well, indeed, friends encouraged him to give Muriel over to some kind of professional care. Uh, but, but he'd look in the mirror and he'd talk to Jesus and he was saying, I just simply can't bear that thought. I cannot do that right now. And so as her condition worsened, he made a decision and he resigned the college to wash Muriel's feet. Now, the striking thing about that is the theological underpinnings. You see, for some, for some he was choosing a task at a remarkable social and professional cost. He was throwing away his career. But not so. You'd be mistaken. His decision was grounded in God's love for him, experienced through Muriel's unselfish 42-year love for him, and that made the service a joy. Now, I want you to hear his words. 
This is from Dr. McQuilkin. It is more than keeping promises and being fair. As I watched her brave descent into oblivion, mural is the joy of my life. Daily I discern manifestations of the kind of person she is, the wife I've always loved. Here it is. Here it is. I also see fresh manifestations of God's love for me, the God I long to love more fully. You'll be blessed if you do this. The one who empties themselves for others, the more transparent and the more transformative divine love becomes. Love transfigures perception. You become as love becomes. Uh, my son got that when he earned a master's degree at some school a few miles away from here. Uh, we do it for all of our master's students because they hear something like this. You're graduating. Now go wash the feet of the world and we want them to go and again, bless somebody wielding a towel. But you see, I'm reversing it today, aren't I? Now, you see, this thing, as you use it, this creates space for God to work and to work mightily. The Spirit stirs our thinking, and our appreciation of God is renewed. His love for us is renewed. Oh, listen, this towel, it's a passageway. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. This towel, it's a pathway to know love that surpasses knowledge. This thing is a conduit that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Paul says he wants you to have all that power. This is a power towel. Okay? And I just, because I get the chance, I want Clayton to have his identity intensely rooted in the love of Christ. And my sweet daughter Lisa, my favorite oldest child, to have an identity deeply rooted in the love of God. And Calvary, my friends, my wife, my friend Paul who is here today, to have your identity deeply rooted in the love of Christ. Now you see, this power towel, it is not only a transformational towel in that you get in a rich love, Oh, it gets better. It brings the blessing of a developed and deepened understanding and appreciation and experience of our faith. Uh, let me illustrate it. Andrew Purvis, who serves as professor of pastoral theology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, tells this first-person narrative. Uh, this is a story that he lived. Uh, it was dark, and it was a cold winter night when he was called to the home of an elderly lady. He entered the house, and he was greeted by a group of family members that were gathered together, and he knew immediately that the situation was serious. The oldest daughter led him into the mother's bedroom, said a few quiet words of transition, quickly left them alone. So are you imagining the room now again? The elderly woman before me was clearly very weak, but she clutched my hands drew me very close to her with intensity. I sensed both her affection and her trust. Here's what he said next as he wrote about this. And I was deeply aware in that moment of my call to serve. With hoarse words between harshly drawn breaths, she wanted assurance of her salvation. 
She told the pastor, (laughs) I know I'm dying. Above all else, I want to hear again the great affirmations of grace and faith and love and heaven and cross. I'm dying. I want to hear those again. The woman wanted a reminder of the reality and truth behind the central doctrines of the Christian faith as they applied to her life at the moment of her death. Oh yeah, empathy was appropriate. Psychological sensitivity were appropriate. But Morse required here. Morse required. So he said, I assured her of our salvation. I prayed with her. I laid hands on her. I blessed her. And then he says, and I quote, it was in that moment of washing feet that I have not probed or pondered or professed my own deepest theological convictions with such vigor. Isn't that cool? You'll be blessed. Purvis was so moved by that moment of transformation in an act of service, he actually wrote a book to Christian leaders. You need another book to read, okay? okay. An entity does, it's a powerful connection between acts of service and theological reflection. Class using, class, sorry. <laughs> Calvary, <laughs> oopsie. <laughs> Calvary, the best class ever Using a towel, it renders deep insight into how God can be known and loved and appreciated and obeyed. I think that's how it worked for Paul. I picture Paul formulating theology on the run. He's got scripture in one hand and a towel in the other. And within that, he ponders and probes and professes his deepest theological thoughts. Wow. Heidi Newmark wrote a memoir, Breathing Spaces. She serves a church in the South Bronx, desperately poor neighborhood where New York City dumps trash. She writes, and I quote, I think the most powerful thing that has happened to me as I've served using a towel is this. I love it. I have been irrevocably threatened by the resurrection. Conduit. And she goes, I have been irrevocably threatened in the best way by resurrection. You hear it. Service-saturated theological reflection. This thing creates space for you to reflect on the excruciating things of life, the joyful realities of life, pondering and probing and professing deep theological yearnings and convictions. The Spirit stirs our thinking, stimulates our appreciation, and God reviews and renews the central doctrines. Hey, did we not just read a few earlier? We did, right? I know, you read it, you did good, I almost gave you a standing ovation, it was great. But you know, that's not why we read it, it was just to recite it. That's why the Apostles' Creed became such a formative influence. You see, you become as faith becomes. All right, so I got to get done here, right? Pick up a transformational towel. It will enlarge your heart and your head. If you do, 
you'll discover in your acts of service that you're actually a recipient of something far greater than what you've done. You'll receive new eyes to see the abundance of God's love. And you'll get new ears to engage in passionate theological reflection. And the result? We become as love becomes. We become as faith becomes. Quite a transformational meal, wouldn't you say? Father, would you help my friends hang a towel in their heads, hearts, and hands? And thank you for Jesus' promise of we will be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.